I hope you have had a great week. I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 8. If you don't have one with you, uh, there should be one uh, near you and a seat near you. And if you don't have one at home, please take that home as a gift. Uh, it is great to see you. If you're a guest here, uh, I just want to say welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. If you're in this room or in the amphitheater at home, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, um, I want to take just a few minutes uh, just to kind of speak to the family, those who call Providence their home, just a few updates of sort of where we're at uh, as a church family that are important uh, right now. Um, as a church family, of course, you guys know Providence, that we care what the Bible says. And the Bible says that God is on an unstoppable mission that his name would be glorified literally throughout the entire earth, just as the waters that they cover the sea. And so as a church family, we say that our entire mission for being, why we even exist is for that mission. It's to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and to worship him. And literally everything that we do as a church family needs to be directed to that specific mission, because that's ultimately what God has built us for. Well, over the last 18, 19 months, uh, we're in, uh, right uh, in this vision for two years uh, where we're hoping to really uh, impact the next 20. And so we're, uh, there's, there's three parts of it, but the third part of it includes expanding or improving facilities. And so we as a church family, as you guys know, uh, we voted in, on uh, two things. Uh, this was about two and a half months ago. Uh, one was the east parking lot, which is up on the hill, which is being worked on right now. And then the second is this room right here to actually make this room a little bit bigger for us. And so um, where we're at with that parking lot, okay, is um, they're, they're, uh, they're actually doing uh, a great job and they're on pace. And so that actually should be completed uh, around Thanksgiving time, okay? So we have about two months left until Thanksgiving. And, um, and so, but for a lot of us, in particular for those of you in this hour and the next, parking becomes an issue. And so we've uh, talked to several uh, of our uh, great neighbors um, and asked if we can park in their areas. And so I want to show you a map of where you can park if indeed you drive in here and you're having a hard time parking, okay? Uh, the red is what we are fixing. That's up um, that's up, let's see, where am I? That's on this side back here, okay? But all of the blue, if it's blue up there, you can park there, okay? And so you can go all the way down to the bowling alley um, and all up and down that road um, as well. And so there's, there's uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable. I know that. Um, and it may get a little bit more uncomfortable before it gets more comfortable, okay? And so just be patient as you, as you come in, I want to just encourage you to show preference, okay? And so um, you, you know what that means, right? Where you look to the needs of others and not just yourself. Uh, and so just be patient with that. Um, then with this room, um, things are done in terms of the plans. They've actually completed drawing them up. And, and, uh, and, and right now those plans are uh, in front of the city. And so uh, it, it takes uh, several weeks, um, sometimes maybe even months, uh, to, to make sure you get all of that approved. And so that's where we're at in that process. But right now things are going really, really well. But there's three areas that I just want to, to uh, share with you, but then to commend you because it's evident that you're doing these well. Um, the first is you're really praying well. And we can tell it's uh, God is showing favor in no, so many different ways. And so I just want to thank you for your prayers and would ask that you would continue to do that. Second is uh, you have been incredibly generous, and we recognize that. We see that. Uh, God has been so gracious to Providence through you, and so I just want to 
to say every single week, I, I, I just sit back and I think it is just remarkable what, what, what God is doing. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, and then the third is perhaps the area where we as a church family really need uh, to work on um, uh, to, to shore up something that, um, that we've not been really, really great at in a long time, okay? And that is when we welcome people that we don't know. And there's a lot of people here. And so sometimes it's really easy for us to gravitate to the few people that we do know and to spend our time with them. But if you come into a room like this and there's a lot of people and it looks like everyone knows someone but me, it, it can become an incredibly lonely place. And we don't want that to be said of us because God's word tells us, he says, welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. And so I just want to encourage us as a church family. If you call Providence your home, I want to ask you to make it your goal when you come here on Sunday morning to meet three, meet three people that you do not know. It may be that you meet somebody who's been a member here at Providence longer than you have, okay? And if, and if that happens, that's okay. It happens all the time. And, and, uh, uh, but, but let's excel at hospitality, okay? So God is at work. I'm so grateful for you. And let's pray as we um, are in John 8 today, okay? Father in heaven, we love you. We're just amazed that you gave us this Bible and pray that as, uh, as, as it's been preserved and translated and we can read it in English and we live in a land, uh, Lord, that's still free where we can speak into a microphone and sing as loud as we want to. We're so grateful for these blessings and pray that you would give us eyes to see truth in your word. Would you speak through weakness? And God, would you please help us to believe what we see? God, would you help us to not look through a lens of somebody else, would you help us to take this examination of the heart and really look primarily in the mirror to see if we are of God. And so we are so grateful that this is here. It's a hard text. And so I pray, Father, that you would help uh, us to not only understand it, but to absorb it, even though it's tense. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So years ago, um, one of my sons was on a basketball team. This was like eight or nine years ago. And, and, uh, and every single week, their, his uh, basketball team was literally beat like a drum. Okay? They just, it was not fair uh, teams. And, and, and we just every week, it was just one, one week after the next where we just got beat thoroughly. And, and, uh, and so every week after the game, I would walk out onto the court. I'd get down on a knee, and I'd tell my son, I'm really proud of you. And then I would say, you know, God's going to, I don't know how yet, but God's going to use this to shape your life and your character. And so week by week, we're doing the exact same thing every game. Well, we finally get to the very last game. Same thing happens again, and I go out. I, I'm on my knee, and, and I'm about to start my little speech. And, 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 and he comes up. He gets right up in my grill, and he says, Dad, I am tired of being shaped, you know, <laughs> and I said, well, you're eight, so there's that, uh, you got a lot, lot more shaping uh, ahead of you in life, and you know, it's interesting, as you look at the Bible, God chooses metaphors to teach us about him, and to teach us about us, and one of the metaphors that he uses to, to, to sort of um, give us a picture of his uh, passion and his patience to shape our lives and our character is that of a potter with clay. Um, we're, we're the clay and he's the potter. And, and, uh, and there's a part of what you see here on the screen that's really appealing when you think that God's hands are, are, are close to you, they're working in your life in a personal way, a close way. And 
uh, that, that's really appealing. That, you know, the thought that God's making us into what we're not, that right now we're not useful and he's going to make us more useful and more pure and more. And all of that's really, really encouraging until you remember that you're the clay, right? And in the illustration and in the metaphor, the clay is not in control at all. The clay doesn't even have a voice in this sense. And the clay is literally being pushed and manipulated into change so that it gets better. And yet, isn't it interesting that every single one of us, we, we, we love to say that we've grown and we pray that we will grow, but none of us likes to grow because grow hurts. When we grow, it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable when God is shaping our life. What we find here also in John chapter 8 is that the harder and more resistant that we are or we become as individuals, the more pressure the potter must apply. And so if you remember John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, it's the same context. Jesus is in Jerusalem at something called the Feast of Booths, of Tents. And what they're celebrating was God's faithfulness and his provision when their forefathers were out in the wilderness for 40 years and how God provided water and he provided light and protection and so many other things. And so one time a year, all the people of Israel, or at least those who could, they would pilgrim back into Jerusalem. They would camp in tents for a week and they would celebrate. In the morning, there was a celebration where they would literally take water from the pool of Siloam. They'd march it over to the altar and they would pour it on the altar celebrating, God, you provided water, that you are, you are the water, you are the one that we need. And at night, they would light a bunch of candles, and so the fire would literally light up the area. Well, it's in this context, in John chapter 7, where Jesus comes into. And in John chapter 7, verse 1, it starts tense. Verse 1 says they want to kill him. Verse 32 says that they send officers to arrest him. And then you, can, you, you, uh, you uh, keep going and you get to John chapter 7, verse 45, and they ask the officers, why didn't you arrest him? And, and they say, because no one has ever spoken like this man speaks. And what they heard him say was on the very last day of the feast, when they were pouring water on the altar, Jesus stood up and he says, I want you to know that I'm the water of life. And if you believe in me, water will literally flow out of your dry hearts. And then John chapter 8, verse 12, that very night when they're lighting the candles, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They're amazed at what he's saying. And, but the Pharisees and the Jews who are obstinate, they're getting more obstinate. They already want to kill him. And now all of a sudden, he's, it's a very tense environment. And they say, you know, you shouldn't be speaking for yourself. You need another witness. And he says, well, I do have a witness. I came from my father and going back to my father, my father will witness for me. He'll testify in this court who I am, that I'm the son of God. And then he goes into a little section that we were in last week where there's a few people they started to believe. Maybe this is the Christ. And so he wants to talk to them in the context of everyone. And he says to them these words in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now we looked at that last week. And so here's verse 37. 
Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear the word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, in particular, if you're new here, okay, or if you're a child, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't go around saying this very often, okay? In fact, this is probably, in my estimation, the most severe and harshest statement that Jesus utters that's recorded in the whole Bible. To tell somebody that you are of your father, the devil, is is not something he goes around saying very often. And what I want you to see here is the reason that he gets to that place is because the more he pushes on the clay out of tremendous love and a desire to rescue them from eternal peril, the harder they become And the harder they become as clay, proportionately, the harder the potter has to push. What you see in the Bible is the only time Jesus reserves his harshest words are not for what we would consider sinful sinners. He reserves them for religious sinners. So I just want to encourage you to consider two truths about Jesus. That if applied to our life, they literally will change the rest of our life. And then at the end, I want to give you two applications for us as a church family. So the first thing that we learn about Jesus here is that Jesus mercifully dismantles the myths that keep us from God. It's mercy that he does this. He didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to be in Jerusalem at this time. He could have gone to, back to Samaria, where in John chapter 4, everyone welcomed him and celebrated him and thought he was great and No one contended with him and they all believed him. No, instead he marched to Jerusalem because he knew that these people were in peril. And what he does is is show them, he identifies the things that they're trusting in. And by leading them through a conversation, a conversation over which he is in complete control. And he's doing all this in order to dismantle the myths 
that are keeping them from even examining themselves. And so, as I've said a few times and even prayed one time, I really want to ask you to do something today, in particular for those of you who say, okay, this is a great text, and this is the person who needs to hear this. I wish my uncle were here, or I wish my husband were here, or I wish my wife were here, or I wish my son was here. Okay, listen, this examination is for you. It's for you. It's for those in the room who think they're saved. That's who he's talking to. It's to those who, who, who assume that other people need to hear it. This is for us. It's what he does is he mercifully dismantles these myths. You see, when Jesus says that his words could set them free, he was literally giving them an invitation of saying, come to me and I will set you free. And instead of coming, what they do is they start laying evidence on the table that they already stand in a right place with God. And so with proportionate pressure to the obstinance and hardness of their heart, Jesus reveals each one of these to be a myth. The first one is this. It's the myth of being from the right family. The myth of being from the right family. We're all from a family. We all have a heritage. We all come from somewhere. And so what it says is this. They say to him, we're offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved. This is verse 33. So this is where we're going to back up to, okay? He, he says, I'll set you free. And they say, you don't get it, Jesus. We're Abraham's kids, right? Abraham is like the lead pastor of the whole joint. We have a key card to every door because our dad has a key card to every door. We're not enslaved to anything or anyone. Isn't it interesting how a lot of us, we find um, interest in our ancestors, don't we? Where we came from, who, who we came from. Uh, we love to find a famous person right, in our heritage. And we don't know why necessarily. We just think it's kind of cool. To, hey, look at that person. I know that person. Everyone knows that person. I'm related to that person. I have two people that you would probably know. One, you'd, one you know, one you'd be like, well, I, I think he's a president. He was, the 15th president of the United States, right? Uh, I think I'm related to him. Of course, it's a long, long time ago. Buchanan, right? No one knows anything Buchanan did, including myself. But he was the president of the United States, right? And I think I'm related to him. The other one you know, and it's Clint Eastwood, right? Now, that's a little bit cooler, isn't it? Like, oh, all right, well, Clint Eastwood, I like that guy, right? I don't know if he knows the Lord, but, but, but I believe that he's a fourth cousin, okay? At least that's what I've been told. I know how to study those things. And each one of us, we probably have somebody. We're like, you know, I got this guy. I have this girl. And, and, and it, like, we sort of like that. We, we like being connected to the right family. We like being connected to people. But what Jesus is saying here is this, is that none of that matters in any way when we stand before God. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Why does he say that? What is he saying? Is he's saying, guys, look, Abraham's kids are not. You have a sin debt with a holy God. And unlike human judges that can be bribed and swayed by power families, Jesus is not. God is not. He's a perfect judge. He's a holy judge. And you have a sin problem. And then all of a sudden what Jesus does is he starts poking the clay, maybe to test how hard it actually is. And he says, you are Abraham's offspring. Yet you are seeking to kill me. I speak on behalf of my father and you do what you've heard from your father. Now, a lot of us, in particular, those of us who are boys, um, when we were on the playground and we got into an argument, right? You settled it by, you know what? My daddy's better than your daddy. You know, it's kind of what Jesus does. He literally instigates a little bit of tension 
by introducing competing fathers. And he puts a capital F on his father and a little F on the other guy. He says, you know what? I'm speaking to you what I heard from my father and you're doing what you heard from your father. We've got two different dads. We have two fathers. Where I came from is not where you come from. And so they fire back. They said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but Abraham is our father. And he says, no, he's not. He says, if Abraham were your children, you would do what Abraham did. But you seek to kill me for telling you God's truth. In other words, what he's saying is actually you're nothing like Abraham. You see, Abraham didn't try to kill God's messengers. Abraham believed God's messengers. You may be physically Jewish, I'll give you that, but you are not spiritual offspring of Abraham. It's interesting, three years before this time, John the Baptist was speaking to a lot of these same people. And this is what he says to them at that point in time. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You get to the book of Romans and Paul tells us there that everyone who trusts Jesus Christ, that we are children of Abraham because just as Abraham believed in the promise of the Messiah, the, but now that the Messiah has come, those who believe in the Messiah, he says, we are spiritual offspring of Abraham. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. This is not about a bloodline. It's about a faith line. There's not a family bloodline on earth that can deliver us from spiritual peril if we reject Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. There's a lot of you like, you know, but my dad's really godly. I come from great stock, people who love the Lord. I have a godly mother, a godly grandmother. I'm of this family. What Jesus wants you to know is no matter what family you're a part of, is that unless we trust Jesus Christ, we are not a part of God's family. And so there's a myth of being from the right family that Jesus dismantles. The second one is the myth of being moral. The myth of being moral, of being good, of being good enough, of being better than me or better than someone else. It's interesting how insecurity breeds comparison. I mean, you think about this, right? Jesus has just told them, you are not Abraham's offspring spiritually. And when we get insecure about stuff, isn't it interesting that we start to compare? When we get insecure about our abilities or our physical looks or about anything, our spirituality, we can always find somebody else that'll kind of buoy us up a little bit saying, well, at least I'm better than that guy. You know, this is, this is how like the whole triangle lives with ACC football. You're in about two weeks. We'll be like, you know, wait till basketball though. Just wait till basketball. Right? We always feel better about that. It, it, isn't it interesting though, that where, where, where they're at, they find a level of insecurity from what Jesus is saying. And so they fire out. We were not born of sexual immorality. Now that's a weird place to go, isn't it? I mean, how did they, how did they get to that base? We were over here. And now all of a sudden we're talking about sexual immorality. Why would they do that? Well, the word on the street was that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. Mary was pregnant before she was married. So what does this give this Jewish audience? 
Well, it gives them a feeling of moral superiority. What they're saying is, look, Jesus, we, we know who our daddy is. If anyone's enslaved around here, it's you and your sordid origin. You ever think about the fact, when you think about the complaint, they're talking about Jesus' origin who doesn't have an origin. He's eternal. <laughs> and, and this is what they're saying. We're better than you, morally. So notice what Jesus does. Jesus is going to stand in the most crowded city at that moment, at Jerusalem. And he's going to say, in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Think about this for a second. Think about how transparent he's being. He's saying, look, as if anyone here has ever seen me sin, then condemn me now. And do you know who's here? His unbelieving brothers who grew up with Jesus. I can see the Pharisees looking over at Jesus' brothers like, I mean, okay, you got a history, right? I mean, you know, did he ever disrespect his mom? Did he ever lie? No, he never did any of that. Nobody can come up with any evidence that he's ever sinned. Everyone's just quiet. Now, why is going to heaven for being moral a myth? And the reason, friends, is because you can't be moral enough to pay your sin debt. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to this with great clarity. He comes and he says this. He says, guys, look, I've not come to abolish the law and all the prophets, what's been written. I've come to cast perfect obedience to them, to fulfill them. And then he says something that's absolutely startling, in particular when you consider the audience was made up not only of Jews, but also Pharisaical Jews. There were Pharisees there and scribes. And this is what he says. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine if you're a Pharisee or a scribe at that moment? What he's basically saying, you have to be more righteous than these guys over here because these guys are not getting in. And then at the end, the other book end is verse 48, and he tells them why. And he says, the reason is because you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Moral perfection is required to go to heaven. And so what happens in between these verses, from verse 21 to verse 47, Jesus introduces six different laws. He says, you've heard it say, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And everyone in the crowd who had never committed physical act of adultery, they were like, okay, oh, good, good, good. I'm safe here. This is a good one. He says, but I tell you, if you have ever looked at a woman with lustful intent, then you've committed adultery in your heart and you are a sinner. All right, well, that takes out nearly everyone, probably everyone. And he goes, okay, second one. And all of a sudden he goes, one to one, there's one, if you've ever, he goes, you've heard it say, you should not commit murder. He says, but I tell you that anyone who's ever had a murderous thought, who has hated his brother in his heart, or has ever said, you fool, is guilty of judgment, is a sinner. So what he does is, through six different tests, he shows that every single one of us has broken the law morally that we all are in need. And then he caps it off with, unless you are perfect, 
You can't go to heaven because your heavenly father is perfect. You see, friends, there is no level of morality that one can attain that pays off our debt of sin. We must be perfectly righteous to go to heaven or be given the perfect righteousness of one who is. And that's his point. And so he says, it's not about being from the right family and it's not about being moral. And so they lay out one more piece of evidence. And they say, we have one God or one father and that's God. And the myth of being religious is addressed. They say, we have one father as God. And Jesus says, no, God is not your father. For if God were your father, you would love me. I, he says, look, I know you are religious. I know you come to God's house and you read God's book. But if you were in God's family, you would welcome me. And the reason you would welcome me is because I'm God's son. But instead, you want to kill me. No, God is not your father. You do have a father and you're reflecting him right now. He's a murderer and he rejects the truth and you're seeking to kill me and you're rejecting the word of God. And so he says, you're acting like your father, the devil. You think, oh my goodness, why so severe? And I think the reason is because he loves so deeply. He's applying pressure that's proportionate to the hardness of the heart in order to... Wake them up and shake them up to say, guys, you're in peril. If he didn't start here, he started with, look, I came from heaven. They resisted that and grew harder. And he says, I'm the living water. And they grew harder. He says, I'm the light of the world. And they grew harder. And he says, you're going to die in your sin if you don't believe in me. And they grew harder. And he says, listen, I can set you free. And they grew harder. So eventually he gets to this place, but you need to know something. Jesus never spoke like this to anyone other than people who were so distracted by their heritage or their morality or their religion that they couldn't see their spiritual poverty and therefore they could not see the coming peril. And to be totally honest with you, when I think about providence and when I pray for you, the reality is that there may be some of us who are members of providence who bank on something and who look the part that are not his children. Which is why I would simply ask you, what are you trusting in today? And if your answer is anything other in Jesus Christ, I want you to know it's a dead end. So Jesus, what he does is in his mercy, he dismantles all these myths. But the second thing I want you to see about Jesus is in his mercy, he delivers the truth that brings us to God. I think this is absolutely remarkable. What he says in verse 42, first he says, if God is your father, you would love me. But then notice what he says next. I think this is just amazing. He says, for I came from God And I am here. I'm here. (laughs) Driven by love, Jesus stood on the earth. And this is amazing because no man or no collection of men and women have ever invented a God that runs to sinners who have offended him. Every God man has ever invented sits high and exalted up on a mountain waiting for people to perform to please him except for the one true God who sent his son to run down the mountain to perform for people who couldn't perform himself. And this is what Jesus did. And he's literally, he's there. He came to 
fulfill his promise. He ran to rescue us. And he's standing on the earth and he's saying, I am here. For you, I'm here. It reminds me of Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, there's three parables that Jesus teaches because of something that's happening. What was happening was Jesus was there and there's a crowd of sinful sinners and there's a crowd of religious sinners. The sinful sinners, they're prostitutes and sexually immoral and they're, and they're tax collectors. There's thieves and all kinds of people and they want to hang with Jesus. But then you have these Pharisees and scribes and they want to hang with Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes are uptight that Jesus wants to spend any time with these Sinful sinners. And so Jesus tells three stories. They're called parables. It's a story with intent. And in each one of them, there's something that's lost. Someone goes to find it. Once it's found, there's a party. And the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son. There's a father who represents God. He has two sons that represent all of us. And this is what it says. It says that the younger son said, Dad, I wish you were dead, but because you're not, can we go ahead and act like you are? You just give me my inheritance. And the dad agrees. He takes the inheritance and he leaves the home in order to go and party and he wastes everything that he has on sin. He gets to the place where he's absolutely broke. There's a famine. He's starving. And so he hires himself out. And what he does is he feeds pigs. Now, if you understand the context, right, these are Jews. They don't like pigs. They don't eat pigs. Pigs are unclean. And yet in his destitute nature, he's not only feeding pigs. It says that he's eating after the pigs have eaten, meaning he's going after the pigs to eat what they didn't want. And all of a sudden he comes and he goes, wait a minute, what am I doing? What am I doing? He writes a speech and he goes home. Says the father looks at him up on the hill. He sees him from a distance and the father runs to him. Patriarchs of Jewish families never ran like this. He runs to them and he covers up his shame. He forgives them and he calls a great party. Now the older son hears about the party and he's so obstinate, he's so angry, so self-righteous and critical that he won't come into the party. He's standing outside. And so the father leaves the party and he goes out. And he says, son, what are you doing? And the son says this to him. He says, all these years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. I was moral. I was religious. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might go and celebrate with my friends. You see, two sons, they both wanted to leave. One left to have control. One stayed to have control. And what Jesus is saying here is this, is that every single man and woman in this room and in the world is represented in one of these two sons. The younger brother went, the older brother stayed. Some are immoral, some are moral. Some are religious, some are not religious. But all of us are far from the father in our heart. And what's interesting is in the first two parables, right? There's a guy has a hundred sheep, loses one. He goes and searches for the sheep. And the second parable is a woman has 10 coins. They lose one coin and she goes and searches for the sheep. And then you get these sons and you go, wait a minute. Who's the one who went to search? And the answer is the elder brother from heaven who came out of heaven and he's telling the story with his own lips. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of the son. He's the one who went looking for the sons. He came from heaven to earth and he's saying, I am here. I'm on the earth. I'm the older brother that's coming to rescue the immoral and the moral. 
the one who hates church and the one who loves church. And the reason he did this is because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so two applications. And then we're going to sing to the Lord. First is let's place our trust solely in Jesus Christ. His audience was made up of the right family who did the right thing and worshiped at the right place and they're all in peril. And I simply want to ask you to examine your heart today. Not your kid's heart, not your husband's heart, not your wife's heart, your friend's heart, your heart. What are you trusting in today? Romans chapter five, verse one says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He came to this earth. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead and everyone who believes upon him, he gives us his perfect righteousness so that when it says you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, we have been made perfect by God through his son. I urge you not to excuse yourself from this examination. I urge you to look for evidences of grace this morning that Jesus is teaching that should be seen in a person who has God as their father. As I said last week, I think it's really important. We are saved by grace, not by grace in anything else. Add any requirement to grace and it's no longer grace, but a heart that is touched by grace is born again with a disposition to mirror our new father. And he says, there'll be two things you'll see in your life. Number one is, if God's your father, you're gonna love me. Do you love Jesus? I love pizza. So I make room in my life for pizza, right? I love my wife. By the way, not in that order, but I love my wife, right? So I make room in my life for my wife. I love my sons. I love football. I love the outdoors. So I think about these things. There's empathy in my heart towards these things. Do you love Jesus? Do you make room for Jesus in your life? He also says that we'll be inclined to listen and apply Jesus' words. If God's our father, we're going to listen to what he says. You see, when my dad writes me a letter, my heart is inclined to read it and to take it to heart. God has written us a book. And the question is, are we inclined to read it and take it to heart? These are some evidences that God is our father. And the second application is let's take this gospel to the world. You see, wherever people live, no matter their faith, morality, or religion, they need to hear about Jesus Christ because without Jesus, it doesn't matter where they came from, what they're doing, or who they're worshiping, they're in peril. At the end of this gospel, John chapter 20, verse 21 says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is why we send teams out. This is why we give so that our missions offering can literally be expanded. This is why we have 10 international church planners right now, or we are supporting their family planning churches where there's literally no church. It's because people need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear. So God has made so much available to us. So let's pray to him. Father in heaven, we love you. We're so grateful, Jesus, that you mercifully came. You mercifully Lord, gave us the truth and you've dismantled the myths that would keep us in peril. And I pray, Father, that as we sing and as we give and as we take this moment to reflect on what you've said, God, would you work in our hearts? God, if there's someone in this room who does not believe in you, maybe they even believe they believe in you. Maybe they, 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 they just assume that being here is good enough. I pray, Father, that you would work in their hearts to see that they need to trust Jesus. And for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that you would confirm in our spirit that there is now no condemnation for us because of Jesus. We're so grateful for your love. We're so grateful for your kindness and your mercy. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.